Welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, and if you notice a slight difference in my voice, I'm a little lower and a little raspier. It's a little bit more AM radio, I think, and that's because we've had some fires around the Reno Sparks area here in Nevada and up in Northern California, and the, the smoke floating in is just choking us out in the valleys and the side effect is that I get to sound a little bit more like I'm an old-time radio host and a little bit less like a modern-day podcaster but all that being said uh, we're hoping the best for the firefighters and that we get through firefighting season uh, as quickly and safely as possible with no structures lost and and certainly no lives lost or people harmed so this is the Noggin Notes podcast. It's episode four, and we're on part three of a three-part series. So this is the final part on emotional functioning. And I'm giving a brief overview on emotions because I'm going to start talking to you about the 10 discrete emotions that we all possess in our brains. And I'm going to do those one by one, one podcast at a time. But before we did that, I wanted to lay a foundation. So in the first two podcasts, we discussed some some basic tenets of emotional functioning, and I gave you some metaphors. And I want to go over those very briefly, but first I want to mention our sponsor for this episode, Zephyr Wellness. Find out more at zephyrwellness.org, and you'll probably see the Noggin Notes podcast because we are partnered there. In part one, I discussed the idea of emotions and cognition, basically feeling and thinking, as a, a metaphor of two tanks connected by a mutual pipe one of which would be lower or higher than the other, depending on which function was operating at the time. So if you're walking through the forest and you're fairly relaxed and you're having a conversation with your friends, you're in reason-based or cognitive mode. You're thinking. There's not a lot of emotion going on. But then if you suddenly look down and there's a snake in your path, you'll flip instantly into feeling mode or, or emotional mode. And when that happens, the, the thinking diminishes. So the tanks that I described in, in part one would invert the the thinking would go low and the emotion would go high and then as you assess the situation you take in some information reason should return about three to nine seconds later and then you can make a decision about what to do and move forward from there so in this episode i wanted to discuss the idea of when you're in feeling thinking is not working and when you're in thinking feeling generally is not working now there's not too much risk to being in full-blown thinking mode all the time, except it, it inhibits your ability to connect authentically with another human being. As humans, we don't connect through our experiences because everyone's experience is different. No matter whether or not you think you saw the same baseball game or you think you have experienced a similar situation, such as a car accident or a, or just watching a sunset. The simple fact is that we all bring into every situation our own personal histories and our lenses by which we see things and our own personal baggage. So therefore, we interpret things completely different. And the interpretation is what drives an emotion. Through the emotions then, because the emotions are similar across all human beings, that's how we connect. So if we're in full-blown thinking mode all the time and we, we try to avoid emotion, what we risk is connecting with other human beings. So we want to allow a nice balance. But the bigger, probably more impactful risk that we have is when we're in emotion mode and then we don't re we're not able to receive information. So the high-level thinking, the, uh, the executive functioning, as they call it, is located in the frontal part of the brain, in the prefrontal cortex. 
if your prefrontal cortex is shut down because you're in an emotional state, say in the middle of an argument, then what ends up happening is reason is not allowed to penetrate. You can't receive facts and information when that part of your brain function is diminished. So when we're dealing with other individuals and they're in an emotional state, we want to make sure we meet them where they are in that emotional state, and that's called validation. And we want to validate, bring their emotions down so that we can have a reasonable conversation with them. The simple fact is that in anger, in sadness, in excitement, in anxiety, what happens is when we're in those emotional states, we're not able to receive as much information as we can, and therefore we end up with lots of arguments. So if we want to meet people where they are and communicate effectively, we have to notice our own emotions, we have to notice their emotions, and we have to work through and around them in order to avoid triggering what's called the fight or flight reflex. If you're in a fight or flight state, you're not going to receive the other person's emotion, and reasonable dialogue cannot continue. The other thing I wanted to address this episode is the idea that the emotions that we feel are all on a range or a continuum from very small to very great, and we have different words to use to describe those emotions. Uh, Sadness, for example, down to the low end could be called disappointment, and all the way up to the high end could be called anguish. And uh, on the excitement continuum, something very great would be exciting, and something very small might be interesting or, or curious. So this is important because if we consider the wave analogy that I discussed in part two, all waves are not the same size. They are the same duration of three to nine seconds in the brain, unless, of course, you're continually thinking about something all the time and then you could create your own wave. But as far as the environment is concerned, the environment will only trigger a wave between uh, you know uh, three to nine seconds. The amplitude of that wave, however, could be very great depending on the experience itself and how you interpret it. So in childhood, our waves are much smaller because the the stakes are lower. Now, as we we grow older, the stakes maybe sometimes get higher in the events that we encounter. So as a child, the emotion will present itself, and if we don't learn to tolerate the wave, we can't go to the next bigger wave. And this is a a very, very brief idea about how post-traumatic stress disorder happens. Essentially what takes place is you experience an event, the amplitude of which the emotion associated is bigger than your brain has been trained to deal with. So in first responders, for example, firefighters, police, emergency uh, attendants in hospitals, we train them out of their responses so that they learn to recognize them very quickly and move through them very quickly. It's not that police and firefighters have an absence of fear. It's that they recognize the scary situation very quickly and tolerate it. Emergency room doctors do not override their disgust response. They just notice it very quickly and move through it so that they can attend to the task at hand. Now think of a child who loses a loved one very very suddenly. They're not equipped to deal with that type of pain or loss because it's too great. So as such, they might experience a, a trauma level event and there could be some residue f- from that. So picture in your minds, if you will, the idea of a very small wave, a very tiny bump of a wave, and that may represent a certain event of a low, low magnitude. And if you're seven or eight years old and all you've gone through is very tiny bumps, we'll say uh, we'll scale it from a zero, which is not an event at all, all the way up to 10, which is, say, a terrorist attack, uh, we can... We can say that the children are mostly in the two to to three to four range. And if something happens very suddenly and very traumatic to that that child, 
that may be a range of eight or nine on the scale, and they're simply not equipped to deal with that. Now, your first responders deal with eights and nines regularly, and they have been trained to do so. So first responders typically are not sufferers of PTSD unless they encounter a situation that they simply were not prepared for. So we want to keep in mind that emotions are on a scale or a range too, so from, from very small to very large. I am very excited to, like I said last time, I'm really, really pumped to be sharing this with you, you guys, and, and I look forward to going through the, the 10 emotions individually, one to the next over the next several episodes. In the meantime, if you have more questions or something's piqued an interest in you, I invite you to check out some, you know, some more professional counseling. This is not designed as a substitute for that, but you can check out uh, psychologytoday.com or aamft.org, or you can go to mind.org.uk or sane.org.uk. You can also check out the zephyrwellness.org website, of course, and you can reach out to us at info at nogginnotes.com, or you can email the Zephyr Wellness uh, team at info at zephyrwellness.org, and you can ask ask questions. And uh, you know we're not we're not going to treat over electronic media, but we can certainly address some some comments that you have or some some inquiries, and then uh, maybe work them into a future podcast. So please don't forget to tell your friends about this, and uh, feel free to subscribe. It's available on iTunes, and it's available on the Android platform as well. And we would love a rating and review because that's how we drive listenership. And increased listenership only leads to increased mental wellness. So on behalf of Naga Notes and the entire team, and on behalf of Zephyr Wellness and that entire team, I wish you great mental health. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back at the next episode where we're going to be talking about sadness. Bye-bye. <laughs>